Well, it's been said that there is nothing more inevitable than change itself, and so you're probably wondering a little, we're going to mix up the format here a little bit for you, so let me briefly explain that to you all. We're going to put this in three sections, our session here today. First one is, is that uh, Elder Oaks would like to spend some time with us and sharing his thoughts by way of presentation here at the podium. Then secondly is that uh, I'll have an opportunity to ask him uh, several questions in relation to the topic uh, today, which is aligning with uh, the brethren. And then as we have done in previous sessions, we'll have an opportunity to have you uh, put forward some questions uh, for Elder Oaks. But I should remind you that not only do we have uh, an opportunity here for those who are here in this uh, uh, conference center, uh, if you do uh, get called upon, please wait until microphone gets to you and then speak clearly and uh, we'll have uh, an opportunity to hear from you. Uh, but we also have, uh, from all of our other locations, uh, we we'll have an opportunity for them to text in if they have a question. And uh, as most of you know, that uh, we sent out in advance of this session uh, asking for questions uh, from you, uh, which we're going to incorporate all those in, and we'll see what we can do. But we certainly will not be without uh, questions today for Elder Oaks. Um, and that will be our format. And uh, at the end, uh, we would like to rev uh, reserve enough time for... Uh, Elder Oaks to share any uh, closing thoughts that he has with us as well as his testimony. Our closing prayer will be given by uh, Joe Crandall, who is the DTA in the West Areas here in the United States. So Elder Oaks, we feel it's a real privilege uh, to have you here today. We do know that you have a lot of passion about this particular subject, and so we're looking forward to it. So, again, brothers and sisters, aligning with the mission of the church and the brethren who directed Elder Oaks. My brothers and sisters, I appreciate this opportunity to speak to professional leaders and staff in the church. As a servant of the Lord, I love you, and I appreciate your efforts to serve the Lord, his church, and his children. My text, which Brother Porter has already indicated, is aligned with the mission of the church and the brethren who direct it. It comes out of what I've experienced in the ecclesiastical work of the senior leadership of the church and what I have observed in the work of some of the leaders and staff responsible to support it. I also draw upon my own professional experience as president of BYU and in the boards of the Public Broadcasting Service and the Polynesian Cultural Center. Knowing that I would be speaking on this subject, I sought the advice of Elder Robert D. Hales. Drawing on his great experience as presiding bishop, he said, When we hire people from the private sector, it takes 10 years to get them not to be businessmen. This isn't a job with a company, he added. This is the Lord's work, and everything is spiritual. What a great introduction. I will speak of two kinds of alignment with the mission of the church and the brethren who direct it. 
First, relationships among leaders and workers, vertical and horizontal. And second, simplification of organization and product. Since I speak from my own experience and observations, and since there are many different departments and relationships in the church, I know that some of what I say in criticism and praise will be inapplicable to some of you, but some will be valuable to everyone, and I ask that you receive what I say with that understanding. My comments about simplification are more generally applicable. Simplification is a church-wide problem of long-standing that requires the best efforts of all of us. I begin with vertical relationships. In the church, there are many throughout the workforce, but I will focus mostly on the relationships I know best between the general authorities at the top and the professional workforce leadership who work under their direction. We may think that these vertical relationships are not unique, are unique, but they are not. In this problem, we are quite like the government. In our government, the top leaders are temporary, elected or appointed by the political process. Most other leaders and staff are relatively permanent civil servants. The problem with this contrast is that those who are permanent can minimize or delay the directions of the top leadership because they know that if the bureaucracy will just be unresponsive temporarily, there will eventually be a new set of leaders who may be more in harmony with the bureaucratic priorities. A contrasting problem is that the political leaders also know they are temporary and they want to make their mark while they are still in office. In pursuing their preferences, they are tempted to ignore the superior experience of the professional staff. I'm sure you recognize a potential similar problem in the vertical organization in our church where top leaders are called and are assigned temporarily, and the professional leaders and staff are relatively permanent. That problem is illustrated in this parable about a mule who had faithfully pulled a wagon over the same road for many years, directed by the same driver. Then one day there was a new driver, when he began to steer the mule in an unfamiliar direction, the mule wouldn't cooperate. He knew the way they were supposed to go, so he quietly resisted. He would initially respond to the new direction, but as soon as he could, he would drift back toward the well-worn path. If that parable sounds at least vaguely familiar, you know why it's timely to discuss a line with the brethren. In the church's vertical relationships, major decisions are made by inspiration to the top leadership, which I define here as the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, the Seventies Presidency, and the Presiding Bishopric. 
The Lord established that principle in an 1830 revelation occasioned by the leadership pretensions of Hiram Page. Quote, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church excepting my servant Joseph Smith. End of quote. Yet I've sometimes seen cases where professional leaders have brought proposals to top leaders in a way that effectively prevented them from performing their assigned leadership. This occurred in a formal presentation to the Quorum of the Twelve that had never been seen or approved by the responsible general authorities up to that time. Similarly, I've seen staff proposals to the Twelve or to councils or committees in a finished form that contemplated approval with only minor modifications. This is objectionable when workforce leaders have made all the vital preliminary decisions themselves, neglecting to involve their top leaders in discussions on alternatives to achieve the desired result. Top leaders are also excluded from vital decisions when experienced professionals fail to give them sufficient information to permit them to have knowledgeable input into the products, processes, or proposals being developed. My last example is more familiar to those working in our international areas. Functional departments have sometimes developed a proposal for application in their area and submitted it to headquarters without ever showing it to the area presidency. This prevents those general authorities from performing the oversight and coordination function they have been assigned by the First Presidency. Several important lessons are taught by these examples. Number one, top leaders are to use their priesthood authority to provide overall principles and direction, and professional leadership and staff are to facilitate that process by research, analysis, and identification of various proposals for improvement. Revelation often comes as we consider alternatives. In major decisions, the entire process should educate the decision makers with full disclosure of relevant facts, meeting after meeting, not with advocacy of one isolated recommendation. Number two, we should all remember our role in the process. I love the Lord's direction that, quote, every man should learn his duty and act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. This means act in your own office, not in someone else's. That principle applies two ways. Employees should not try to act in their leaders' offices, and leaders should not try to direct every part of their subordinates' work. At all levels, we should refrain from acting in someone else's office or responsibility. Three, what if you disagree with the directions of your leaders? This is the Lord's work. In the long run, He will direct and correct his servants one way or another. If possible, find an opportunity to present your point of view to your leader. In the meantime, 
Pray for the needed correction. And in your prayers, be sure to acknowledge that you and not they may be the one that needs correction. This is called humility and meekness. Such an approach will bring all of us the kind of relationship the Lord described to our early leaders when he revealed, quote, teach one another according to the office wherewith I have appointed you. And let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. End of quote. Four. Finally, remember that the leaders of the church want total honesty in reports and presentations, whether it is good news or bad. Tell the whole story. As I conclude this subject of vertical relationships, I compliment the many leaders, ecclesiastical and professional, and the many staff who are increasingly faithful and effective in their relationships. For example, in preparing last year's media initiative, Light the World, with its 25 days of 25 ways to follow the Savior's example, the Missionary Executive Council had a succession of presentations from skilled department and media leadership, each performing their assigned task to achieve an inspired program. I come now to what I have called horizontal relationships. These include department-to-department -department relationships at church headquarters. Less obviously, they also include lateral relationships that exist in field organizations as directed by headquarters policies and practices. When open and cooperative back-and-forth relationships are discouraged, any organization develops independent vertical channels we call silos. A headquarters organization that directs its field operations through various functional channels always has the problem of silos. In his valuable book on military organizations, General Tony Zini describes and criticizes this problem, and I quote, this structure broke down the organization and staff along functional lines, administration, operations, planning, communications, intelligence, logistics, and so on. Each area operated on its own. Each was completely independent. Each pursued its function and no other. Each had its own heavily layered hierarchical command structure that processed only the information in its own functional area. The view of military operations from each function was very narrow, only what was in its own chain, and its view was not shared outside its chain. When it passed on, when it was passed on, it went up to the top and then to the commander." End of quote. The lesson learned in the military is that this kind of siloed organization does not work because Zini says, quote, we just can't integrate functions, intelligence, operations, planning at the top, end of quote. In other words, the various functions needed in an organization must be coordinated 
in the field, not by the top commander or the most senior leadership. Like other large organizations with field operations, the church must have the appropriate balance between the policies and procedures that must be imposed on the entire organization by senior leaders at headquarters and the policies and procedures that should remain flexible for modification by the field organizations. Consequently, our senior leaders have been trying to reduce the effect of functional silos to the field. You align with the brethren when you assist these efforts. Headquarters organizations, including the departments in which many of you work, cannot coordinate and should not direct all the work in the field. We need to leave greater flexibility for the area presidencies who know the local circumstances and can coordinate the various programs and organizations according to the needs of those areas. As King Mosiah taught, see that all these things are done in wisdom and order. One size doesn't fit all. The programs and processes that work well in North America are sometimes counterproductive in the, development, in the developing world. As an area president in the Philippines, in order to build up the church in that developing area, I same, sometimes found it necessary to resist and postpone some uniform directions that came from church headquarters. For example, while the perpetual education program was being implemented with very valuable results in other parts of the world, it was not then appropriate for the Philippines. Because of some unique history in the Philippines, a PEF loan was not understood as a loan, but as a grant with no repayment expected. As originally administered, it was seriously undercutting our high-priority efforts to teach self-reliance in that country. In contrast, sometimes a developing area needs to add programs or projects to achieve its goal. Additions that are not directed in the mature church because they're assumed there. I learned this when I arrived in the Philippines in the 1980s on my first assignment there. I was met at the airport by the stake patriarch and 20 other members who handed me a petition to remove the stake president. Immature in their knowledge of church doctrine and procedures, these new members were pursuing the popular Philippine principle of people power. They needed teachings on basic church government, which were not then part of the prescribed curriculum. Area presidencies need flexibility to add what is needed locally. We have many examples of our increasing effectiveness in breaking down the silos that once existed. In contrast to earlier days when top leadership at headquarters had to authorize the exchange of information and cooperative relationships needed to make our field operations more effective, area presidencies and directors of temporal affairs now have horizontal relationships that allow most such needs to be worked out in the field.
This has made possible the remarkable progress we have seen in the administration of meeting house priorities. Many other examples could be cited. I've been speaking about silos in functional organizations from headquarters to the field. Silos can also occur at church headquarters when departments refrain from the needed coordination and cooperation with departments representing other functions. When that happens, the differences must be resolved by the Quorum of the Twelve or the presiding bishopric or even by the First Presidency. That is a tax on the time of senior leaders that is not good for the church. Aligning with the brethren requires every possible coordination and cooperation with sister departments. The general authorities and professional leadership and staff in the temple and family history and priesthood departments have given us a wonderful example of this in their joint efforts to increase the number of family names taken to the temple, especially by youth. We need to be united in the work of the Lord. This principle is demonstrated in this example from the world of sports, and I quote, If you've ever watched a great soccer team play, you've seen how the whole team moves together and adjusts their strategy depending on where the ball is and who has it. It wasn't always so. In the 1960s, many teams played a more static game where defenders stayed in the back row and passed the ball to midfielders who passed to forwards. The English revolutionized the game by giving nearly every player the potential to score. The team moved as one, taking advantage of numbers and spaces and anticipating the other team's play. It was called the perfect example of teamwork." End of quote. To align with the brethren, we must also be supportive of and participating in the prophetic mandate to simplify and reduce. As Alma taught his son, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and small means in many instances doth confound the wise. President Monson gave a very significant direction on this in April 2017. In a brief message to general and area authorities, he referred to what he called his, quote, concern relating to the unnecessary burdens we at headquarters and in the area offices sometimes impose on the local leaders and the members of the church, end of quote. He continued, quote, Often we hear of new initiatives or programs wherein local leaders and members are being asked to fulfill yet more and more assignments. The list of traditional duties expected of our members is already extensive. Leaders and members are expected to serve in the priesthood quorums and in the auxiliary organizations, to home teach and visit teach, to serve in the temples and to help in welfare assignments, to search out their kindred dead, index genealogical records and write family histories, to clean meeting houses and clear snow from the sidewalks or to maintain the grounds, 
to accompany the youth on outings, camps, youth conferences, and temple excursions, to attend or teach seminary and institute, often in the early morning, to provide setup, cleanup, and food for funerals and ward activities, and the list goes on and on. That's the end of my quote. Now, after adding our members' family duties and employment demands to this list, President Monson counseled that, quote, we must ever be careful not to overburden the leaders and the members. Adding, I'm continuing the quote, I fear that too often we may be doing so on the backs of the members and the leaders to their detriment, end of quote. President Monson then concluded with this significant challenge, quote, My request to you this morning is that we all think very carefully about reducing the workload we at headquarters and in the area offices too often impose on the local units. Church membership should be a blessing, not a burden. May God grant to us, my dear friends, the courage and the inspiration to reduce and simplify the programs and initiatives of the church. I have complete faith that the Lord will bless us to know how to do so and that he will give us the help we need in this regard. That's the end of the quote from President Monson. Our efforts to align with our president on this important direction to reduce and simplify the programs and initiatives of the church has obvious financial and personnel implications. Every large organization tends to expand expenses, personnel, faster than its income. President Hinckley frequently cautioned about this in our leadership meetings. Our church membership grows most rapidly in the developing world where tithing income grows far slower than expenses. President Hinckley took some steps to restrain our expenses and number of employees. But as President Monson has said, all of us must continue to do our part to continue this vital effort. We all recognize the wisdom of Parkinson's law that work expands to occupy the time available for its accomplishment. An equally true principle teaches that work or projects tend to expand to occupy the time or talents available in a department or even in a ward. To resist that tendency, we should never promote church programs simply to preserve the employment or even to use the talents of existing employees. All need to cooperate in the reallocation of resources and, where necessary, the downsizing of personnel. Similarly, bishops should not invent callings or work to occupy the time of members. In today's world, members have work enough to do in their families and communities. To preserve our personnel and financial resources to do what is better or best for the future, We at headquarters should look for opportunities to reduce and simplify by discontinuing programs or publications that are merely good. 
A positive example of this is the recent work of the Correlation, Materials Management, and Ecclesiastical Departments to eliminate materials that are not being currently used. Such eliminations preserve resources for us to add what is identified as the highest priority. Related to that effort is the Lord's direction to the early missionaries to, quote, say none other things than that which the prophets and apostles have written and that which is taught them by the Comforter through the prayer of faith, end of quote. I spoke earlier of relationships, both vertical and horizontal. We've been making excellent progress toward making our work more effective in these various relationships. I've concluded by quoting our prophet's call for us to reduce and simplify, which is a far more difficult and long-range challenge. It's hard to eliminate what is good in order to preserve our financial and personnel resources to strengthen and add to what is best. I join President Monson's faith and prayer that the Lord will continue to bless us as we unitedly press forward on these important tasks. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We could probably quit now. (laughs) But we have a few questions for you, and I wanted to ask a few uh, myself, and then we'll uh, turn it over to our audience on this. Elder Oaks, uh, over the last several weeks, uh, it was obvious to me that in preparation for this Leadership Enrichment Series that you spent a lot of time preparing, getting input from the other uh, of the brethren, uh, and you have a lot of passion yourself about this aligning with the brethren or, you know, or aligning to the mission of the church and those who direct it. My question is, is that about the why. Why is this so important? Not just to you, but just why is this so important to church? And probably part two of that is, is that if we don't, what are the consequences that could come about with this lack of alignment? We have a responsibility to use the financial and personnel resources of the church to press forward the work of the Lord. And if we don't get highly effective vertical relationships and horizontal relationships, and if we don't simplify and reduce as the prophets have called for us to do, we fall far short of our responsibilities to press the work forward. The work will continue to go forward, but we will pay a terrible price in reduced momentum and increased conflict and ineffectiveness if we don't do the kind of things that I've been thinking about. And I've seen that in church organizations, local in general. I've seen it in, in business organizations, uh, PBS and so on, that I've been associated with. Those relationships, if they're not effective, uh, and the overall organization, if it's not carefully uh, pruned to accomplish its major purposes, uh, have the effect of hampering the work. And and finally, an organization can 
and I'm speaking of a business organization, an organization that lets its expenses grow faster than its income, finally faces discontinuance or bankruptcy. These are not small matters. Good. Question. Um, I think we all know that when we align to the brethren, that that means change. Things happen. Uh, new things come about. But with that, all organizational change is personal change. And sometimes, as a result of that change, there is contention or conflict within departments, between departments, between areas and departments and what have you. Any thoughts that you have in regards to contention and contention in the Lord's work and the impact that it may have if we don't keep that in check? Well... Uh, contention is a, is a great problem uh, in any organization, and it's uh, heightened, as you observe, by, by change. Uh, we need to remember that the Savior is the Prince of Peace, and the devil is the father of contention. And when the Savior appeared to the Nephites, as recorded in the 11th chapter of 3rd Nephi, he talked about this subject, and I've always been impressed that the Savior's teachings to the people were not addressed to those who were wrong about the method of baptism, which was the occasion, the issue to which he spoke. Uh, he didn't say, those of you who are wrong don't contend. He spoke to people whether they were right or wrong. And he said, contention is of the devil. And that's an overall lesson for all of us on the, on the subject of contention. I uh, wrote a chapter in a book a long time ago called Contention, and some of the, the uh, notes that I made on that occasion, I, some of the things I said, I, I refer to. In the scriptures, uh, the elders in the uh, restoration of the gospel were directed to publish their glad tidings with all humility, trusting in me, reviling not against revilers. Do your work in mildness and meekness. Now, that's a principle that comes over into what we do in our staff, professional, occupational work, as well as ecclesiastical work. But in that chapter, I said this, which I... I cite on the suggestion you've given that I give examples. This is the only one where I'll read something that I, that I wrote earlier. But when I looked at it, I said, I can't say that better, especially not extemporaneously. <laughs> <laughs> During the 20 years I've been intimately acquainted, you can, that dates me. This was obviously written 13 years ago. Still true, by the way. <laughs> During the 20 years, I've been intimately acquainted with the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have marveled at how effectively they live the commandment to avoid disputation and contention. They are not always in agreement, but they are always in harmony. They are not uniform in opinions, but they are united in effort. They are many, but they are one. That's a that's a good charge to us in connection with the subject of contention. So, Elder Oaks, uh, going forward for us as leaders and as staff people, just 
Well, the implication for us would be what in terms of contention? How we, because it may be out there, what do we need to do to make sure that that doesn't exist? Well, find ways to reconcile differences of opinion. And reconciliation doesn't demand uh, a resolution of disputes. It doesn't demand saying you're right and I'm wrong. Uh, what it demands is that we follow inspired leadership and that we uh, reconcile our differences by restoring relationships. Uh, in the legal profession, lawyers have to learn how to, to work with people that take an opposing point of view. Now, not all the lawyers do that very well, uh, but, but that's what the highest ideals of the profession uh, call for. And I think that's called for in a, in a uh, situation where people work together and inevitably have different ways of thinking about things. They should be candid, diplomatic in presenting their points of view, but always doing so with kindness and respect. I, I, just from my perspective is that I, I think that that word of reconciliation is so helpful for us that because I think the tendency, the natural tendency is for us to focus on the differences or demean or whatever it might be. And here it's our focus really ought to be on building relationships and reconciling. Very good. In, in what I've observed in the Quorum of the Twelve, we often come into a meeting, 12 different people, with numerous different points of view. But we're all in harmony and wanting to do the work of the Lord and in wanting to preserve those personal relationships from which we have additional harvests in years to come. <laughs> Remember the Lord's teaching, if you're not one, you're not mine. We can't be his, his unless we can reconcile differences. Now, reconciling a difference may come, as I've often experienced it coming, in a discussion in which the Spirit of the Lord settles upon us, and we all come to one point of view. And I give up the, the uh, point that I brought into the meeting and come into harmony with somebody else's point that I earlier disagreed with. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes it happens by saying, well, uh, I still don't agree with what my leader is proposing or the majority is settling upon, but, but harmony and reconciliation is more important than any single issue. And so I'll... I'll just trust in the Lord to correct this thing if it's not right. I'll be patient and humble, waiting for him to correct that or me. And it always happens. <laughs> One way or the other. So, Elder Oaks, as you, you shared the quote from President Monson from General Authority Training uh, earlier this year, this message is pretty powerful, and we have probably a long ways to go to get there. But if we as a workforce and as leadership achieve this level of simplification that the brethren envision, 
what would we look like in terms of the work or, or the organization or the people? Any thoughts on that of what the kind of the end state would look like with a simplified organization? Yes, I can't, I can't outline the, the configuration of a simplified organization. We're still praying and working on that. We're making some progress, but we're still praying and working on that. But I think the principle uh, is very clear. If we achieve simplification in the work of the Lord, the organization will conform to the work we have to accomplish, not the work conforming to the organization we now have. I may not say that clear enough, it's but clear. I think <laughs> it's clear. I think it's <laughs> a, a capable of being understood, perhaps before it's agreed with. So, um, in terms of the people of a simplified organization, any thoughts about that? What we would be doing differently? What we'd be capable of? Any thoughts on the, on the people aspect of the organization? Well, we, we may have better qualified people. We may have fewer people. We may have people that are just learning to do a new job that's necessary for the organization. Uh, but on the whole, um, the, the goal we want to have is a, an organization that works well within the resources that we have. And by well, I mean effective to accomplish not just what's good, but what's better and what's best. That's vague as it needs to be because I, I can't be more specific. <laughs> it's pretty clear, though. So here's what we'd like to do in the time that we have. And as I mentioned to you all earlier, we're just trying to get input from a variety of different locations as well as here, um, here in this immediate audience here. Uh, and so let's just start out. Uh, one of the questions that I want to put to you, uh, Elder Oaks, is that and this came prior to this session. But this came from an individual, and it's more of a personal point of view, that, but uh, I think this is on the minds of perhaps a lot of people. This has to do with vertical relationships. The person said, With so much focus given to following direction from the brethren, as an employee, I feel my own personal revelation is at times stifled or undervalued. How can I balance my responsibility to act or not to be, uh, and not be acted upon and still obey and align with the counsel of the brethren and my leaders? That's a very important question, and it's one that often comes up. I faced a variation of this question when a person was frustrated because they had prayed, had gone to the temple, they'd fasted and prayed and felt that they should nominate a particular person to be their counselor. And when they submitted that proposal to those that had the keys to approve the calling, it was turned down. Great frustration. What's happened? Am I not hearing revelation? Is my leader not hearing revelation? Is this not what the Lord wants? And so on. Same question in, a, uh, in an ecclesiastical setting. The principle uh, to answer this question is very clear and not sufficiently understood in the church. And the principle is this. 
I am not going to receive revelation for what my leader will do. I am not going to receive the final revelation for what the church will do. I'm going to receive revelation for what I will do. And the person that asked me this question was true to that revelation. They submitted the nomination that they felt to submit, or on the employment side, I've submitted the proposal that I have felt to submit. But in the church, we don't have the final say. We are in an organization where someone else has the keys or the authority or the responsibility to approve the proposal or the nomination. And it's our responsibility to do what we've felt inspired to do and then accept the result, keep praying for the accomplishment of the purpose, and maybe the Lord will reveal to us how it's going to be accomplished, but we will be loyal in following the decisions of our, of our leaders. That's what the Lord taught in one of those scriptures that I, that I uh, mentioned. Uh, here I'll just deviate and, and share with you something I, I did when I was president of BYU. And it's under this same principle. I received a lot of letters from young women who looked to me as a spiritual leader uh, as well as the president of the university and they wrote me for advice. I, I tried not to get between them and their bishops but I, uh, I'd given a talk on marriage or something associated with it and so they came to me for clarification. And in these numerous letters that I received the question was always the same. My home teacher or my boyfriend or somebody in my home evening group has told me that the Lord has revealed to him that we should be married. <laughs> and what do I do? <laughs> my answer always was uh, receive that uh, news with, with kindness and, and respect. But you are not bound by what somebody else Received in the way of a revelation, if such it was, uh, when it, the matter is for your decision, not theirs. And uh, you go to the Lord and get your revelation on whether you accept that proposal, but don't be bound by somebody reciting to you that they've revealed that you ought to marry them. Now, I think most people understand that, but take that principle and apply it to the question you've asked, and it's the same principle. The same answer. Yep. Very good. Let's take a question from the audience. We have our, our folks that have the microphones. If they'd stand up, and then if there's anybody who has a question in regards to lining with the brethren for Elder Oaks. Don't ask me who you should marry. <laughs> <laughs> Are we missing? There's a hand right there. That's right there. I was going to mention my revelation, but I won't now. Uh, how would you, uh, what counsel would you give us in terms of exceptions? And when 
An exception is, you know, of course, out of the handbook, uh, outside of the bounds of the handbook or the other policies that are established. How would a leader, uh, how do we navigate exceptions? It's a, it's a good question. It often comes up in an ecclesiastical as well as an employment uh, setting. Let me answer it in terms of the, of the handbook uh, and liken that to uh, rules and regulations in an employment setting. Uh, the handbook sets up general rules and with very few exceptions, uh, which I better not try to define, uh, there can be exceptions to rules in the handbook. But we have to be very cautious about who has the authority to make the exceptions. Sometimes the handbook says, do this uh, unless you have contrary approval by the First Presidency. Well, that sets out that situation for those kind of rules. But there are a lot of other rules in the handbook, uh, meeting uh, arrangements, for example, and uh, uh, qualifications for callings in wards and branches, so on. Those would be examples that uh, someone holding the keys could make an exception. But there is no overall answer to the question you've asked, except to say that sometimes the handbook says who makes the exception. If it doesn't say uh, the person that holds the keys for that particular function is presumably the person that could make exceptions. If I were a key holder trying to apply that principle uh, in a handbook situation, I'd be very sure that I would talk to my counselors if I had counselors, because you need more than one uh, set of information and prejudice and, mm. and opinion and point of view. So I'd look to counselors, or if I didn't have counselors, or maybe even if the issue were heavy enough, I'd, I'd go to my file leader. If I were a stake president, that would be an area 70. So I think those are the the parameters, but the short answer is that generally we we can make exceptions to rules, but we only do it carefully and within the context of counseling in your councils. So playing off that, uh, Elder Oaks, we have a, a question that came into us before the session, and it falls probably best in horizontal relationships. But one of the things that we've talked about is that, and we all know this, the voice of the workforce. Many good things that we do uh, in our workforce, but one that we're still working on is this question about fear speaking up because of fear of reprisal. And that's not just in terms of with your leader, but it is in terms of the team or the group overall. So this question kind of uh, addresses that kind of concern. It says, a little bit on the long side, alignment requires objective feedback and truth as we know it to be shared transparently so decisions are made with the best counsel. What can we do to encourage greater candor with love in our work? Church employees may have a technical expertise that some don't 
yet they may be reluctant to give honest and candid opinions out of difference or worry that they are not leading like the Savior. How can we strengthen our capability to giving loving and chastening counsel to one another as the Savior would? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's two implications so, here, Elder Oaks. Is one is is it's it's probably what we can do as a leader to foster more of this open communication, sure. but it's also the role of the individual to yeah. be willing to speak up and be candid. Both as well. of those are involved in that very important, very complicated question, which fact I signified by saying ah. Uh. Okay, let's go on to our next question. Uh, I think it's helpful to divide that. Uh, A first thing we hope for in the church, whether it's an ecclesiastical organization, a ward or a quorum, uh, an auxiliary, uh, or an employment relationship, or position at BYU, for example, of church employment. Um, We hope that leaders will create a feeling within an organization that people will not be inhibited from offering important feedback or counsel. And that is a challenge for a leader. Uh, Some are naturally better at that than others. I've seen in the organizations I've been in, some people that naturally are open and some people naturally closed. And those that are naturally closed need to open up in an organization of the church and be open. On the other hand, uh, one thing that tends to close leaders is uh, excessive or trivial or contentious Uh, input. Under the heading of trivial input, I would put uh, a communication from uh, a person on any and all issues that come before the the decision maker. Finally, if if you've got something to say about every issue that you're not responsible to decide, you're soon going to find a leader that, that will attach first less weight to your input, and finally, uh, less considering of it at all. And I've, I've been in those situations. I, a, a person that rarely gives input has greater weight attached to their opinions than a person that has something to say on everything. <laughs> those are two extremes. And so, uh, also, inherent in your question was the suggestion that that we always need to to do the input in uh, a considerate framework avoiding contention and and so on Uh, another thing about uh, input I have uh, I receive every week a lot of requests to meet with members and they just want to come in and meet me. And, and uh, they want to tell me how to perform my duties. <laughs> that is not always said, but, but it's always implied. 
And uh, we have a church of 16 million. I have to make decisions on how I use my time. And so uh, if a person writes me a short letter, I appreciate it ever so much more. And I read all my mail. Uh, A request to meet with me, I almost invariably have to say no. A person that sends me a letter, I'll read it. But as my secretary, Margie McKnight, who's here, knows, uh, some people attach to a communication a book, which they request that I read, or a a single-space memo, eight or ten pages long. I get more than one of these every day, and I don't have time to read them. And so when we talk about an attitude of openness, I advocate an attitude of openness. I try to practice it, but there are inevitable constraints, and the people who want openness need to use it appropriately in order to to facilitate and, and maintain and perpetuate that openness. So you've had years of, obviously, leadership experience here. Any experience that you can recall back where you kind of had to be bold and candid with your perspective uh, to perhaps your leaders? I have, uh, uh, yes, I can think of one example I'll share with you. I'll speak to a, a general principle. I have felt in the circumstances in which I have worked, I mentioned the Polynesian Cultural Center, I mentioned BYU, I have, have generally experienced uh, openness and and a uh, among my fellow workers a sophistication on the subject that we're speaking about and so i i speak with appreciation of that the examples i gave earlier that were negative to illustrate a principle those are members of the church who are not used to working with leaders And they forget that it's a church of 16 million, and I can't read a letter from them every week, and I can't become a pen pal, which some of them ask for, and and so on. I haven't experienced that in in my relationships with the people that I've I've worked with, but we have to deal with those kind of situations. Now, when I came into, into church employment, I had... Uh, worked for uh, more than a decade in law firms and and uh, universities other than controlled by the church, and I I had experienced and practiced uh, a very blunt form of uh, feedback, and so I've learned to be more diplomatic than the, the relationship. And the feedback that I'm going to give is an illustration. Um, when I was appointed president of BYU and before I took office, uh, I knew that, I, that the board of trustees had just made a decision to have a law school at BYU. And I was coming from a position as a professor of law. That was one thing I knew how to do. And... Uh, member of the first presidency when I was being interviewed as a potential president of BYU said, what do you think about our decision to have a law school at BYU? 
And I said, I think it's a bad idea. <laughs> that, that was honest feedback. Uh, honest and, as it turned out, wrong <laughs> feedback. But it, but it, uh, it established the fact that I would be honest if they chose me as the leader of BYU, and that I would. And uh, it, there was a follow-up question. Well, what if if the leadership of the church has decided that we should have a law school at BYU? What would the responsibility of the president be? even if he thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> I responded that my, I would work for the board and carry out the responsibility, the decisions of the board to the best of my ability. And that, that satisfied the, the principle. It was not a, a very diplomatic way, but I soon learned that you didn't talk to the First Presidency quite that directly. <laughs> and uh, that's been a... It's a good lesson in candor and openness and the fact that, that uh, inspired leaders don't hold it against people if they say something to him they don't agree with or didn't want to hear. Uh, by the way, just to finish the BYU example, I thought it was a bad idea because I knew how very thin the potential faculty resources were. I knew them all personally. I knew enough uh, about what BYU had to do to know that we had to have faithful Latter-day Saints and highly respected law teachers in that position, and we didn't have very many. And I also knew it would cost an awful lot of money to have a first-class law school and that was probably a lot more money than the leaders of the church had been led to believe. And, it, and so I, uh, the candor that I used on that occasion turned out to be a very valuable uh, representation for me when I went to get additional money. And when I... <laughs> when I had to do other things. <laughs> and the Lord, the Lord blessed us with a remarkable faculty. And as I think everyone here knows, the BYU Law School came on scene in the top third of the law schools in the United States and went forward from that position. And, and so, as I said, I was wrong in my conclusion, but it turned out to be right to be candid. And then we worked together to overcome the difficulties that I had foreseen. Okay. I think that's, uh, that's a principle that has served me well. There's another thing I would, I would say about that. In, uh, uh, in our responsibilities, we will sometimes have to report bad news to those who preside over us. I have a little advice in reporting bad news. Uh, I've already said, report the good news and the bad news. But with the good news, you don't have to be so careful in how and when you report it. With the bad news, you have to size up those who receive it and be careful in your timing as well as your content. On the subject of content, 
if you have been one who has advised against a particular step, and then the bad news is that it's not working out, don't show too much pleasure in reporting. <laughs> I think you understand yeah. what I'm saying. Uh, there's some place in the scriptures where it says, oh, be wise. What can I say more? Excellent. Okay. All right. Another question from the audience. In the quest to align with the brethren, the assumption is that we know the direction of the brethren. And with an organization this large, any count, not everything can be discussed in general conference, obviously. And so any direction or guidance on how to disseminate the information to the end of the road to the people who need to hear it. I'm uh, so glad you asked that question. Uh, it's very important, especially in a complex, multi-layered organization, that we get more effective at disseminating uh, the, the desires of top leadership. And if I can start with top leadership, uh, the top leadership in a department, in a college at BYU, in a... Uh, a council or a committee in the church and in the Quorum of the Twelve, the presiding bishopric and, and the 70s presidency. Every one of these organizations has a need to become more effective at disseminating the directions we are going and the, what I would call the major decisions. Uh, I don't think we're very good in the Quorum of the Twelve. In doing that, uh, one reason we're not very good is that we we sometimes don't know whether we have that latitude or whether that's a first presidency decision, and then we have to turn to the first presidency for disseminating the decision. And that same kind of confusion between level two and level one applies to level four and level three, and right down through the organization. You know what I'm talking about. But insofar as we can, within the limits of our responsibility, we need to get more effective at disseminating what the, what the decision is at our level, consistent with those who preside over us, and get that word out. For example, area plans out in the, in the areas that we speak to, they ought to be shared as widely as possible. Uh, I really appreciated the leadership of the Mexico Area Presidency. Uh, that's an organization that I have geographic responsibilities with uh, Elder Whitney Clayton to oversee. So I'm more acquainted with the Mexico Area Presidency and their area plan than I am with others. But I was really thrilled when they came to Elder Clayton and me and said... We think our area plan ought to be written for the membership of the church in Mexico. And that we ought to write it so that everybody knows what it is. And I was very pleased at that wonderful example because I have been through several generations of area plans in different assignments where the area presidency wrote an area plan 
to be reviewed by the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency or the Seventies Presidency, and that was it. And that is very short-sighted. That's a good example of something we need to get better at. The purpose of an area plan is to unite our efforts and to establish priorities and things we work on. And the more people know about it, the better. There's two-way responsibility here for those who are receiving it as well. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I I think that when we are better informed, we can make better decisions about how we use our time. If I were a bishop or a quorum president and had the area plan, I would talk to my counselors and I'd say, how does this affect how we ought to be using our time? Looks like the brethren are more concerned to get uh, us to teach uh, such and such and and allocate our time and so on. So I think uh, an area plan or the the better knowledge about what we're trying to accomplish. It wouldn't be area plan in, in a different department. But the purpose of those plans is to make our efforts more effective. The more people know about it, the better if they'll do something about it. So, Elder Oaks, we have a question that came, has come from our global uh, leadership. And um, it says, how do we start the process of simplifying? So much seems so worthwhile. How do we even start to decide what, we, what could be trimmed? Uh, we have to be selective about what we trim. We have to be attentive to the priorities that come from those who preside over us. There's quite a bit of simplification in the church that could only be accomplished by decisions of the presiding bishopric or the Quorum of the Twelve or the Council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. And so uh, a lot of things that we might want to start with on simplification are above our pay grade, if I can use that, that expression. Uh, And so I think we begin by saying, what can I do to simplify what I ask of those in my organization or my family, my ward or my department, that uh, doesn't seem to be better than good? I've used good, better, and best to talk about the fact that we have levels of importance in what we do as an individual, as a family, as as a leader. And if we honestly look at what's good in contrast to what's better, in contrast to what's best, and make priority decisions in our own personal stewardship, we start toward this process. And then we can make suggestions to our leaders. It looks to us like we could simplify the way we do this, or we could uh, uh, have fewer meetings, or accomplish more in a meeting, or hold a shorter meeting. For example, when I install a stake presidency, which I did last Sabbath day, I uh, always give them some counsel 
and part of the counsel that I give is applicable in this situation. I say uh, hold the fewest possible meetings and to those meetings invite the minimum number possible. And I say this to you because you shouldn't magnify your calling with somebody else's time. <laughs> and then I explain what that what that means. I said, for example, uh, as few meetings as possible, that's, I think, self-evident, and invite the minimum number possible requires you to say, what's the purpose of this meeting? If it's to motivate, uh, invite a larger group. If it's to coordinate the work of different Quorums and auxiliaries, like a state council or a ward council, you don't always have to have everybody invited. You don't have to invite the primary president and both of her counselors. Ask her to send one person and leave two people free to attend to their church callings and their family business. So if it's a coordination meeting, let's have a small group. And and let's don't have a coordination agenda item that takes... 10 minutes of a meeting and use that as an excuse to invite a lot of people to just sit in the bleachers and don't have any part in the meeting that you've called. Well, I've said enough about that, but I'll just go back to my comment. Don't magnify your calling with somebody else's time. Elder Oaks, on, on the t- following on from the simplification here, um, when we got questions coming in, it's apparent that the message is starting to get out. It's not just an organizational issue. I think that everyone is starting to get an idea that there's actually personal implications involved. And this is one question that falls into that kind of category. It says, um, in order to uh, simplify work and better meet the needs of our members, um, I just want to make sure... Oh, some departments, sorry, this is it. In some departments, if every employee does their best, the result will be many new products. How can we simplify and reduce and still excel? I think that's yeah. a question in the minds of many. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, and I, I spoke of that perhaps too briefly in my statement when I said we should focus on what the work is, not what resources are in the department or how we keep this person busy. Focus on the work that needs to be done and we'll achieve the, the uh, result that is sought by that, uh, by that question. And that, in many instances, as we proceed further in a united way with simplification and reduction, that's going to call for fewer employees or for employees with different resources different qualifications, retraining is, is more of an issue if you're, if you're trying to simplify and reduce. And, uh, and all of that is going to be done with kindness and inspiration. But it's, uh, uh, to, it's to plant that idea and start us thinking about it that I felt such a strong impression to speak of that subject in this setting at this time. When the Prophet of the Lord says, simplify and reduce. And he said it in a meeting where he didn't have a very long talk. He didn't have a lot of time. And he had all the general authorities and all the area authorities. 
and the presiding bishopric who have unique responsibilities on this, on this subject. And when he chose to speak about this subject and to do it as directly as he did and to say simplify and reduce, it, it threw a panic into me because I've worried about this subject for many years and I don't have very many. This is the way we do it. But I think when the prophet asks us to do something and promises us the help of the Lord in doing it, we can rely on that. Very good. More questions from the audience. Doesn't have to be a bad idea. Here we go, right down here in the middle. What do you, my question is, what do you do if you have two leaders, they're both my leader, and you have two leaders that aren't aligned with each other, and you're trying to align with them, but you don't know which one to go with, and they're both leaning in different directions? Yep. That's a, that's a very practical question, and let me tell you how it, how it occurs in the departments of the church. This is something I've had a chance to observe. You get one executive director or one managing director of this department, and they're meeting with another comparable leader in another department, and they don't agree. Now, if those departments are in the same council, they can turn to the council to resolve it. But if they aren't, each one of them needs to work with their own council and make them aware of the disagreement. And this, you don't do this on every trivial difference. You do this on major issues only. But, but whether it's at this level or at this level, you uh, make your file leaders aware of it and let them kick it up line. And, and when it gets to the Quorum of the Twelve, as we hope it does on major decisions, we are responsible in the Quorum of the Twelve to work out the accommodation, the resolution of the issue, if it goes up the temporal line, it goes to the presiding bishopric for the same purpose. And if it goes up uh, the presiding bishopric line here and the 12 line, we have ways and we're working more closely together now than we've ever worked before. And we have ways of resolving those at this level. And if we don't, we can go to the first presidency. In this church, we are organized to resolve those differences but we don't we don't want to overload that problem. I refer to that as a tax on the time of the presiding authorities. They need to be worked out as much as possible at the level your question indicates. But get it defined, get it prayed over, and get it upline if you don't solve it otherwise. Another question has to do with those horizontal relationships. This is a little on the longer side, but I don't want to lose the intent of this person uh, and what they're trying to ask here. said, I have seen that most employees, both here at headquarters and in the areas, have a sincere desire to be more collaborative. I have, however, seen collaboration impeded by concerns about getting ahead of the brethren. For example, I've heard on multiple occasions employees say something along the lines of, I would have brought you in earlier, but I didn't feel like it because, I, we, because we haven't taken the idea to the brethren yet. 
What suggestions do you have for increasing cross-department collaboration in a way that doesn't get ahead of the brethren? I think uh, the way to deal with that subject is to, to see that, that the work of staff and workforce leadership is to educate, not to resolve every issue or to focus on one alternative and become the advocate. And if you focus on the subject of education, you uh, reduce that problem very considerably. Because if the uh, intent is to educate, you're not going to be seen as getting ahead of the brethren. Unless you sent... sent uh, the First Presidency, a book that you think they ought to read to educate them. <laughs> I joke <laughs> there, of course, but, but think of it. Uh, when people send me uh, a 15 or 20-page memo, I'm not referring to members, they're trying to educate me, and I, I appreciate education, but I have to ration my time for that on a multitude of different subjects. But if if you are very thoughtful in this effort and you, you point out something to, uh, to the, your file leaders, uh, you're not going to be getting ahead of the brethren. Let me give you an example of this that comes out of my experience in uh, uh, the Missionary Executive Council. Uh, some time ago, uh, one of our very valued uh, workforce leaders in that department uh, brought to the council the fact that that we were getting an inordinate number of of uh, mosquito-borne diseases among our missionaries, particularly our sisters, because their legs were exposed to mosquito bites, whereas the brethren had trousers that gave them some protection. And this is something that never occurred to me. If there was ever a case of getting ahead of the brethren, this was such a case. I was thrilled to, to have some education over a period of time about that problem. And we discussed it in the Missionary Executive Council. We took it into the Quorum of the Twelve. We consulted with other departments and people who were concerned about this. And finally, the Quorum of the Council of the and the First Presidency sent directions to the field that the sisters in areas where this problem was prevalent and it took some doing to define what the areas were that they would uh, be instructed to wear uh, slacks uh, in their proselyting activities. Now that, that was not ever seen as... as getting ahead of the brethren. It was helping the brethren. And if it's done with the right spirit in the right way, the, the, the concern that's voiced here will not be, be uh, uh, realized. Good. Well, Elder Oaks, um, we, as you know, have had the leadership pattern for seven plus years now. Aligning with the brethren is what we would call as one of our core three items. And we've heard lots of discussion on that, but I think today, both from the podium and here, we've had some very 
strong you know statements you know direction but also the subtleties of how we need to work across the the boundaries as well as up and down the organization so on behalf of all of us here in that professional workforce we're grateful for that guidance in that direction it's been wonderful thank you okay. i would uh, i would just remind you uh, that in this setting i'm a teacher and a counselor I'm not your file leader. Uh, and so you get your directions in the channel that you understand. I've given some counsel and some teachings, but I don't want to be seen as, as uh, uh, what was the phrase we used earlier? Uh, getting ahead of the brethren. <laughs> They're brethren ahead of me, and I don't want to get ahead of them either. <laughs> so follow your your outlined employment and, and priesthood lines, but uh, I have felt a strong spirit of inspiration in the selection of the things that I would speak about today. And I just ask you to, to take that as, as teaching carefully prepared from one who sustained as a leader of the church. And uh, I'll I'll close with this thought. When I invite questions at a priesthood leadership conference, uh, I always say to the stake presidencies, bishops and branch presidents and quorum presidents who are there, uh, if you ask a general question, I will try to answer it because I'm a general authority. If you ask a specific question, I'll refer you to your file leaders. <laughs> so we've been talking about general questions here. And if in the answers to questions I got too specific, check them out with those who preside over you. It's the Lord's organization, and we use his principles to, to resolve it. And when we're in harmony with the Spirit of the Lord, when we're in harmony with those he's called to preside over us, whether it's an employment relationship in the church or an ecclesiastical relationship, those principles are the same. And the Lord blesses us when we, when we are one. And when we're not one, we are not his. And I, I close with that thought and with my testimony, my dear brothers and sisters. The Lord loves you and his servants love you. And he knows of your service and the goodness of your heart. And we know you and presume the same. And this is the work of the Lord. When we're on his errand, we're always entitled to his help, as President Monson has often taught us. I testify of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose servants we are and whose work we seek to do. And pray that the Lord will bless us to do it ever more effectively as we move into uh, a future we cannot foresee, but he can. And he'll guide us on that journey as we step out of the clear light of the present into the partial light of next year and into the darkness of the years to follow. He will bless us. I testify of that and invoke his blessings upon you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you.